You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus Christ. We declare that you are good. God, we know that there are seasons where we can taste and see that you are good, where we're experiencing it. We can can taste your goodness, Lord. We also know that there are other seasons in which we must trust that you are good because our experience may not line up with with what we would expect a, a good God to do or to permit or to allow. But Lord, we trust in you. We have tasted, we have seen, Lord, and whether we're in a a good season or in a hard season, Lord, we trust and believe and declare together that you are good. And Father, we pray right now in Jesus' name, God, that as your word is open, Lord, as we read together and study a, a psalm for the brokenhearted, for those who are cast down and discouraged and depressed, Lord, God, I pray that you would speak. God, I pray, Lord, that you would would illuminate your word which you inspired, God. God, someone who's in a dark place cannot be helped by my wisdom or by my words. They need to hear your voice. They need your truth. And so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would speak as your word is open now for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to Psalm 42. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. Just raise your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, now you do. Or if you left yours at home, you can just leave it on the table on your way out. In 2015, Disney Pixar released one of their popular animated films. It was called Inside Out. And the main character was Riley Anderson. And most of the movie, however, you didn't get to see a whole lot of Riley Anderson because you were, you were viewing the whole movie through the lens of these five characters that were living inside Riley's mind. There was fear and disgust, sadness, joy, and anger. And it was a movie, really, it's sort of a comical look at emotions and how does a child handle emotions. And at different times, you got an insight into grown-up brains. And there were grown-up versions of these same uh, characters. And, and at different times, when someone was angry, then the angry emotion really sort of took over. When someone was happy, then the joyful emotion uh, took over. And it, it, it became such a popular movie that elementary school teachers actually used this movie and, and these colors and these characters to help children understand and process their feelings and how they're doing on that particular day. Now, how is, the, how is a Christian supposed to deal with the idea of different emotions? What should we expect for our lives as followers of Jesus Christ? What should we expect to happen in our lives in terms of emotions? Do we have the same emotions that we had before? Have our emotions changed? Is there an ideal emotion that we should be aiming for at all times? Well, the book of Psalms gives us a number of clues about how to handle all of the different emotions that come in our lives at different times. And today we're going to be looking at a psalm that was written for people who are struggling with the emotion of sadness or discouragement or melancholy or, or depression. And uh, so we find ourselves today in Psalm 42 and 43. Now the reason why we're here, if you're visiting with us from another church, uh, a number of years ago I made a commitment that over the course of my lifetime I was going to preach every single psalm in the Bible. And so five or six years ago we started with Psalm 1 and then did Psalm 2, Psalm 3 throughout the summer. And so every summer we do summer in the Psalms and last year we left off at Psalm 41. And so today we're at Psalm 42. But before you look at at, at Psalm 42 you're going to see above in your Bible, above it it says book 2. The book of Psalms is categorized in five different smaller 
books, and there's a, a reason for the arrangement, and, and book one, uh, 37 out of the 41 Psalms in, the, in, the, in book one of the book of Psalms, they're all written by David or for David or about David. They all say of David in the title. But then when you get into book two, only 18 of the 30 Psalms in the next book are written by David. We're introduced to some other authors, like the sons of Korah, like uh, Asaph, like Solomon, David's uh, son. One of the other differences between the two books is in book one, the predominant name used to describe God is Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H, or Jehovah, however you would translate or transliterate or, or pronounce God's personal name, I am that I am. But in book two... The, the predominant name for God is Elohim, which is translated G-O-D. It's more of a general term for God as the ultimate supreme divine being. And so today we're going to be studying Psalm 42, and we're actually going to look at Psalm 42 and 43. Let me read both Psalms to you uh, together. It says, To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah, as dear pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession in the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep as the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, as at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodly people. From a deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. These two psalms go together for a number of reasons. First of all, in some of the older Hebrew manuscripts, they, they weren't divided. It was just one psalm. You can also notice that in front of Psalm 42, there's a little title where it says to the choir master, a mascal to the sons of Korah, but Psalm 43 doesn't have a title. But look at 44, it has a title. 45 has a title. 46 has a title. All of, most of the psalms in this, in this particular book, within the book of Psalms, book two, have titles, but Psalm 43 doesn't have a title. So it's inviting you to continue to read it so it would flow together. But the main reason why Psalm 42 and 43 go together is that refrain, that chorus of the song in verse 5, in verse 11 of, of Psalm 42, and then in verse 5 of Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So we're going to read these two psalms together as one song. And we see here the psalmist is talking to himself. 
Uh, three times he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's, he's engaged in this inner dialogue. He asks himself a question and then he gives himself a command. He questions himself and then he commands himself. Hope in God. And we're going to look at, at this psalm. That chorus is repeated three different times. And so we're going to divide this psalm into three stanzas. And what we're going to discover today is that we must tell our soul to help in God on three different occasions, three different kinds of situations that we find ourselves in. Here's the first one. We must tell our soul to hope in God when we are dry. We must tell ourselves to hope in God when we are dry. The psalmist begins with the simile of thirst. He says, as a deer pants for living Water, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You might have a, a poster in your house or a, a mug in your cupboard that has this verse. As the deer pants for a living stream, so my soul pants for you. And chances are there's, there's a, a, a picture of a deer and some sort of a mountainous uh, landscape and a beautiful sparkling flowing river going through the middle of it. And the deer is drinking. That's a completely inaccurate depiction of Psalm 42. The deer is not drinking. The deer is thirsty. If you want to have a poster, it wouldn't sell a whole lot. It would be a deer in a desert. The deer is dry. The deer is thirsty. This is not a, a, a psalm that we read when we're standing by the riverbank and splashing water up on our face. That's not, that's not what's happening here. The psalmist is in a very dry place. As the deer pants, there's a desperation. The only sense of hydration... That, that the psalmist is experiencing is through the salty tears that are cascading down his cheeks. In verse 3 he says, my tears have been my food day and night. That's the, the only source of water, of hydration that the psalmist is experiencing right now. His life is so dry. Have you ever been in a dry period? In your own life? This is a... a an illustration of a spiritual truth that the psalmist was experiencing. We can go through seasons of drought spiritually for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because of suffering. Something's happening with us medically or physically, emotionally or relationally. And there's a, there's a, a, a sense of suffering that we are going through. And that that produces a dryness in our relationship with God. A desperation for, for us to have our thirst quenched. Sometimes it's because of suffering sometimes it's because of stress we're stretched in all of these different directions we've got all of this pressure at work and then something blows up at home and then things aren't quite right at church in our small group or whatever it is and we feel dry because we're just so spent we've been working so hard and we've been perspiring spiritually and we need a drink we need some a, a fresh glass a, a uh, refreshing water to drink from God and his presence. Sometimes it's because we're suffering. Sometimes it's because we're stressed. Loved ones, sometimes it's because we're sinning. Sometimes we can feel dry in our relationship with God. And one of the questions we need to ask ourselves, it's not always the case, but sometimes it's because we've been rebelling against him. One of the reasons why we're in the, we find ourselves in the desert sometimes is because we ran there. There was a mirage that Satan laid out for us that we thought that if we dug out this, this cistern that we could leave the fountain of living water as Jeremiah 2 says. And we dug out a cistern but it's a broken cistern. It can't hold water. We run after something and that can cause us to be dry in our relationship with God. So those are some of the, some of the categories. Suffering, sinning or sim simple stress. Those are the three main, main reasons why we can go through dry periods. But then there's a, there's a fourth reason. And the fourth reason why we sometimes find ourselves in dry periods is just because. And we don't really like that answer. We don't really like that reason. But loved ones, the truth is Aslan's not a tame lion. And God does what he pleases and he knows what is best for us. And sometimes in his infinite wisdom, he leads us through dry places. He does make us lie down in green pastures. He does restore our souls. But there are times in which we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's dry there. And it's dark there. 
And that's where the psalmist finds himself. Is that where you find yourself today? To make it worse, at the end of verse 3, there's this group of insensitive people who are saying, where is your God? In the midst of all of the suffering, people are taunting him and, and attacking him, attacking his faith. How can you still believe in God when you're going through all of this difficulty? But the psalmist tries to tune out those negative voices in verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. In, this, in, in verse 4, the, the psalmist is, is referring to a time in which he was a worship leader or a lead worshiper at the temple. The title says that this was written by one of the sons of Korah. And the, the sons of Korah, we talked about this last week, that they were the gatekeepers at the temple and they were also the worship leaders. And so he's remembering a time in which he's feeling so dry right now, but he remembers that rich time when he was leading and people were singing and, and there was so much joy. But now he's experiencing so much dryness. Loved ones, we need to be intentional. The New Testament tells us to not neglect the meeting uh, together. You might not have come to church today because you felt like you necessarily needed it. But loved ones, you don't know what's going to happen to you this afternoon or tomorrow. This could be the last Sunday that you're able to worship with the body of Christ for some season of time. It's been unique as we've been, as we've been getting ready to move into this facility, just sort of one by one, person by person, key people in our church who have been with our church from the very beginning have been getting sick. Some of them it's been going on for months and for weeks and they are longing to be, they haven't even seen the new building yet. They've been praying for this for a decade and yet they cannot be, they haven't been able to worship with the people of God. And there is, as elders, we've been going to visit with them and pray, and pray for them and be with them. And they're all expressing this desire. They want to, just want to be with the people of God. Don't take for granted what you are experiencing right here, right now. Don't underestimate the power and the significance of corporate worship. It is a privilege and a joy. The freedom that we are enjoying right now in this nation... And, and your physical ability to get here right now, we need to be thankful for all of those things. And we also need to understand that corporate worship plays a role in our ongoing day-to-day -day discipleship. I love how uh, pastor author James, uh, John Piper talks about this. He says, what we do in corporate worship with other Christians is a real transaction with the living God. God means for these encounters with him in corporate worship to preserve our faith in a way that we will remember later. We will remember later. If corporate worship were not a supernatural work of God, it would be pure sentimentalism for the psalmist to remember his experiences. He is not engaging in nostalgia. He is confirming his faith in the midst of turmoil and discouragement by remembering how real God was in corporate worship. Loved ones, if you're here today, be all here. Soak it in. Every song, every word, every interaction. Because God intends to use corporate worship in your life in a powerful way. Who knows how you will need it in the future. In verse 5, we have that refrain, that chorus. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's talking to himself. He says, hope in God. Hope is a confident expectation. Hope is kind of a tricky word in English because when we say hope, we, don't, we say things like, it's like our personal preference. I hope it doesn't rain today, right? We're, we're, we don't have a confident expectation that it, that it won't rain. I hope England wins the World Cup, right? We, we don't necessarily have a, have a confident expectation of that. But that would be my preference. But this is a confident expectation. He knows that even though God might not have acted yet, he knows that God will come through, that it's going to happen. And he says, and I shall again praise him. He knows it will not always be this way. 
I may be dry right now. I may be distant from God right now. But it will not always be this way. I will again praise him. This will change. See, here's the thing that we need to understand about our emotions. The bad news about emotions is emotions are always changing. But the good news about emotions is that emotions are always changing. And so you can be filled with joy and, su- and, uh, and be super excited and super thankful. And then with surprising speed, we can be down in the dumps, can't we? We see, we see this with Elijah. He, he, he calls down fire from heaven. And then he, we see him go into this incredible, dark, dry season of depression immediately after. But the truth is... We can go from good to bad very quickly, loved ones. It's also true that we can go from bad to good very quickly. And we can go from joy to sadness, back to joy, back to somewhere in between. And this is what the psalmist believes. I will again praise him, and he calls God my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down, I'm in verse 6 now, within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. So not only is he dry in his relationship with God. He's feeling distant. Here's why. Because when he's talking about the land of Jordan, when he's talking about uh, Hermon, he's talking about a location outside of the boundaries of Israel. It, Mount Hermon is sort of called the land of Jordan because that, that, those are the, that, that's where the, the source for the Sea of Galilee and then the Jordan River, it flows down from Mount Her- it's the source of the Jordan River. So um, here at Harvest, uh, we, we do a lot of hand-drawn maps. So if you're new, you're just going to have to get used to this. It's a lot clearer, uh, I find, if you just get rid of all of the other uh, details and just focus on what we want. So that's the Mediterranean Sea to the left, Sea of Galilee at the top there, and then the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea at the bottom. There's Jerusalem. That's where the sons of Korah would have spent most of their time because they're gatekeepers at the temple. That's where they worked. That's where they lived. But... For whatever reason, he's up in Mount Hermon. That's present-day sort of Lebanon, Syria, that area. And he's far from Jerusalem. He's about 220 kilometers away. That would be like from, from you know, wanting to, to be here, but you're up north. You're in, you're in Bracebridge. And uh, it would be, if he were to walk eight hours a day, it would take him a week to get from Mount Hermon back down to Jerusalem. So there's a significant distance that he's experiencing from the presence of God. He also says that he's at Mount Mazar. Now, we don't know where Mount Mazar is, but Mazar means little. So he says, I'm at Mount Hermon. I'm at this little mountain. So just take a look at Mount Hermon. Does that look like a little mountain to you? I mean, he could be referring to, you know, one of those small little hills in the front. But he could just be referring to the whole area. Now, even though the mountain is big, there's no spiritual significance to Mount Hermon for this psalmist. The mountain, the big mountain for him is Mount Zion. The big mountain for him is the mountains of Jerusalem. And one of the reasons why we can feel dry in our relationship with God is because we get our eyes on something that we think we want. And we are not content with where we are. Even though he's surrounded by this glorious beauty, he calls it, this is just some little, small, insignificant mountain. And sometimes we can be so focused on, I want to be here. And I want God to use me here. And sometimes God says, no, you're going to spend a little time up north in the little mountain. And you might think that you have great plans and that God has great plans and you're waiting on him. But so often God's plan involves a little bit of time at Mount Mazar. A little bit of time doing something that you think is... This guy was the worship leader. He was at Jerusalem. He was at the top of his game, at the top of that mountain, Mount Zion. And now he's in obscurity. He's up in Mount Hermon. He's not even within the borders of Israel. He's discouraged. He's dry. But God has a plan and a purpose for that. Verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now what's going on here? I mean, the psalm began with not enough water. Now there's too much. And that's the interesting thing about about poetry. It's just always because because it's emotional. It's always shifting. It's always changing. And so dryness is one of the times where we need to tell our soul to hope in God. We need to do that when we're, when we're dry. But here's the second thing. We also need to do that when we're drowning. 
when we're drowning. The metaphor completely changes. There's a waterfall above him, and then there's waves that are crashing over him. He's completely overwhelmed. He can't touch the bottom. He's trying to find something solid to grab onto, and there's nothing there. He's drowning. But notice what he says about the waterfall and about the breakers and about the waves. He says, it's the roar of your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves. You see, he knows that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that that water that is flowing, that is crashing over, God is sending that and orchestrating all of that and he knows that God is the God of the storm and as we sang earlier today just as Jesus did in the boat all that needs to be said is peace be still and those massive waves would be like a sheet of glass they're God's waves it's God's waterfall they are God's breakers he is trusting in the sovereignty of God Jonah, when he wrote his, his, his little song in, the, uh, in the, the belly of that great fish, he quoted Psalm 42, talking about God's waves crashing over him. He believes that God is sovereign. In the midst of all of this chaos, verse 8 is this strange moment of calm, this respite from, from the chaos. He says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. He talks about day and night. Remember earlier in the psalm he said that day and night all he had were tears. But now he's saying, you know what, day and night, even even in the midst of the tears, even in the midst of these waves crashing over me, even in the midst of these people taunting me, God has been commanding his steadfast love. Whatever you are going through right now, whatever is happening, whatever is starting, whatever is stopping in your life, one thing that has never stopped is God's decision to love you. That in every situation and every circumstance, God has promised to love his children. The Lord commands his steadfast love. And then I love this, at night his song is with me. His song is with me. You know, before I became a, a, a pastor here at, at this church, preaching and teaching regularly, I, I worked at Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, and my, one of my first jobs there was to be a worship leader. And uh, sometimes I wish I still had that job. Uh, to be honest, because you know what, I spent I spend hours and hours, and it's agonizing trying to put together like one of these sermons, like I, it's, I'm hopefully right now it's coming across like it's really easy, but the way to make it come across like it's really easy is to do a lot of hard work ahead of time. And so I'm sweating and working and perspiring and trusting God, and it's a wrestle each and every week. But sometimes I just wish I was still a worship leader. Here's the reason. Everyone remembers songs. No one remembers sermons. In the middle of the night tonight, if you get a call and you have to go somewhere and, and, and deal with something when you're driving in the car, you're not going to be like, I hope in God when I'm dry and when I'm drowning. No, what are you going to be doing? You're going you're gonna, you're gonna to be singing a song, aren't you? You're going to be singing a song. You are, you are going to be, there's something stored inside of you. Because I know it's true. I don't remember my own sermons. But I remember songs. I remember about seven years old being at junior camp at Camp Minioe and learning this song. I won't sing it for you. I'll spare you that. But it goes like this. It says, come to the water. Stand by my side. I know you are thirsty. You won't be denied. I felt every teardrop in the darkness you cried. And I long to remind you that for those tears I died. That's not the sons of Korah, that's the sons of Bill Gaither. But that is a song that has stuck with me. That song that Jaleesa was just, was just singing, Jameson, our worship leader, wrote it. You are, you are 
stronger than my fear. You are constant in your kindness. You are more than what I feel. You are good. You are good. That is a song that has gone with so many people in our church. In the night, that has been God's song that has been with them. What song do you have? Maybe it's time to turn off the, the, the radio or the Spotify or the Apple, however you're engaging with media these days. And you need, to, you need to make sure that you're listening to some worship music, that you are getting some songs into your heart that God can use in the night. At night, his song is with me. It's a prayer to the God of my life. He says, you're the God of my life. Every molecule, every cell, it's all being held together because God is the God of my life. The oxygen I'm breathing, the gravity that's keeping me on the ground, the sunshine that's warming me from, he he created me, he is sustaining me. He is the God of my life. I am not drowning. I may feel like I'm drowning, but I'm not drowning. The lifeguard is not on lunch break. He has me. This may be how I feel, but he has commanded his steadfast love and his song is with me. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock. So it seems like we're gaining some momentum here. He's he's finally encouraged. I, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Okay, there we are back again. That's the thing. The thing about emotions, emotions are always changing. We thought we had a resolution. We thought he had finally dealt with his issues and he was now trusting God. But in the same sentence, he can say, God, you are my rock, but then ask the question, why have you forgotten me? Back to the chaos. Now remember that he's writing a poem here and so his aim is not theological precision. His aim is emotional expression. We don't have the Psalms, Psalms like this, to necessarily teach us about God. These Psalms are meant to teach us how to talk to God and how to relate to Him. It gives us sort of a script for our sorrows. And so the psalmist says, why have you forgotten me? Not not because it's theologically accurate to say that God can forget anything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. The only thing God said He would ever forget is to forget our sins, to toss them behind His back. To separate us from them as far as the east is from the west. But in his experience right now, he feels as though God has forgotten him. He says, why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound, notice this, it's a wound in my bones. It's not something that you can see on the outside. It's deeper than that. It's a hurt that's so deep, it's a wound in my bones. He says, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Here come those enemies again. Look back at verse 3 real quick. All the day long, where is your God? Here they come again. Here comes the adversary. Here comes the accusation. Here comes the doubt. Here comes the taunt. Here comes the ridicule. Here comes the discouragement, the exact same thing. It's repeated, it's repeated. These messages keep coming back. And so, what do we do when these negative messages, whether they come from someone outside, or whether they're coming from within, or whether they're coming from the enemy, what do we do when the message keeps getting repeated, the negative message keeps getting repeated? Well, we got to do some repeating ourselves. That's what the psalmist does. Okay, if you're going to keep saying that, I'm going to keep saying this. So he says in verse 11, the same thing he said in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And then in 43 verse 1, he says, okay, God, now I need you to go after these people for me. These people who are accusing me and saying that you don't exist. He says in in verse 1, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. I'm not going to defend myself. I don't have to talk back to these people. God will deal with them. Against an ungodly people from the deceit and unjust man, deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Again, it seems like he's got some momentum going. You're my refuge, God. But then here we go again. Why have you rejected me? You see the back and forth, the ups and downs? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 
I love this. Get ready to hear this. Verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to the God of my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. He asks, send out your light. Because here's the truth. We need to tell our soul to hope in God when we're, when we're dry, when we're drowning, but also when we're in darkness. When we're in darkness. That's why he asks for light. He can't see. And because he can't see, he doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. And he's been so lied to, he says, not only God, please send out your light so that I can see, but send out your truth so that I can understand. I'm hearing all of these negative messages inside and outside. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. He's, he's trusting and believing that he will leave Mount Hermon. He will leave that dry place. And he will go back to the holy hill. Back to the temple. Back to the presence of God. Verse 4. I will go to the altar of God. To my exceeding joy. He moves from excessive sorrow to exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. He's like, I'm going to get my guitar out of the case. I'm going to start singing. I'm going to lead others to sing again. I will praise you with the lyre. Notice the hope in what he's, this is going to happen. God will lead me out of this. One of the biggest lies, why we need God to send out his light and his truth, one of the biggest lies that Satan tries to tell us is he whispers in our ear, it will always be this way. It's never going to change. And what we need to tell ourselves in response to that is, I will again praise him. This is, emotions are up and down and unpredictable. And I know that as, as quickly as I change from praising God, now that I'm all discouraged and, and downcast, I know that that can change again. And I am confident that it will. And then when we come to verse 5, we have that chorus one more time. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, uh, uh, some pastors hear about them on the radio or see their books. They're, they're called doctor. That's because they have, a, they have a PhD in Old Testament or they got a doctor of ministry graduate program or something like that. But there was one, one pastor uh, in the last century named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was called doctor because he actually was a doctor. And uh, he was from, from Wales and he was highly educated and an exceptional young physician. In fact, he was being groomed to become the royal physician, uh, to, to be the personal physician for the royal family. So he had it going on, okay? He had game. And he walked away from all of that and went into full-time ministry. And as he engaged in, in, in ministry, he became fascinated with this idea, as a doctor, with this idea of emotions, specifically with the idea of depression. And I don't want to use the word depression. I know there is a, there is a whole range, a whole spectrum, isn't there, of different types of depression and different ways of dealing with uh, depression. If you're dealing with depression on a really chronic, uh, uh, in, in, in chronic, regular, day-to-day -day terms in a debilitating way, then, then I'm not necessarily talking about that. You can talk to one of our pastors or elders or your small group leader about how, how to get help in that situation. But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was... was wrestling with this idea because he was fascinated by how the spiritual is interconnected, isn't it, with the emotional and with the physical and how all of those things relate. And so he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, really looking at this idea of why do we are get ourselves into these situations? What are the causes and then what are the cures? And it's, it's quite a large book, but the whole book is really just a commentary on Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And this is, what, this is what he has to say about this passage and how it relates to us. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness is life? 
is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning, you've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, and on this great note, defy yourself. Defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise him. It will not always be this way. Loved ones, you might think there's like one, pre- one preacher and a few hundred people in this room right now. No, there's a few hundred preachers in this room right now. And you are the most influential preacher, the most powerful preacher in your life. And you need to preach to yourself. And preach, as Dr. Martin Joy said, who God is and what he has done and what he has pledged to do. Loved ones, here's the amazing thing as we think about Psalm 43 and 42. As he, the prayer request is given, send your light, send your truth. I'm here in obscurity of some random mountain near Mount Hermon. Nothing is happening. Send your light. I'm in this dark place. You know, loved ones, that prayer was answered very specifically. Because that whole region around Mount Hermon in New Testament times, it was called Caesarea Philippi. And a group of men went up on a hike in Caesarea Philippi one day. And as they were hiking and they got to a place and one of them started praying and his clothes started shining. And then his face started shining. And then dead people started appearing. Moses and Elijah. Loved ones, one of these mountains in this very region became the Mount of Transfiguration. Where God sent forth his light. And it emanated from the face of his glorious son, Jesus Christ. And then, as the light is emanating, God spoke his truth and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. And then in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. He sent forth his light and his truth. He answered the prayer of Psalm 43 by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And here's what we need to understand. Jesus Christ came as fully God and fully human. And because he was fully God and fully human, he was called a man acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows. He said before he went to the cross that his soul was deeply troubled. Jesus experienced the range, the ups and downs of emotions as a human being. And he is the light that will ultimately lead us to the dwelling place of God. Look at verse 3 again. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Jesus came from the dwelling place of God in heaven so that he could come as the light to guide us back. And so when we are preaching to ourselves, we must, we must preach Christ to ourselves. We must preach the reality of the gospel. We must think about what do I deserve And what have I been given? No matter how dry it is, no matter how much I feel like I'm drowning, no matter how dark the darkness seems to be, what do I deserve? Do I deserve better than what I have right now? No, I don't. In fact, I deserve worse. Whatever hell I may be going through here on earth is infinitely better than the hell that would await me apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so we need to remind ourselves of what do I deserve as a sinner separated from God? And then what have I been given? I have been given Jesus Christ who came as the light 
but who suffered at the hands of darkness, who suffered for our sin, to bear the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. That's what we need to remind ourselves. I am a sinner who is saved by grace. What, what do I deserve and what have I been given in Christ? That's what we need to preach to ourselves. Let his light lead us. But loved ones, the truth is sometimes when we let the light lead us, it leads us through very dark tunnels. And sometimes the light of God's presence moves a little further ahead or turns around a corner and we're surrounded in the darkness and we have to ask ourselves, will I continue to move forward? Will I believe that there is a light at the end of this tunnel? Or will I be paralyzed by my fear? You see, two people can be in a tunnel at the same time. One person can think it's a cave. Another person can think it's a tunnel. The difference between those two people is what they're doing with their feet. If you stand still and overthink it, you will convince yourself that you're in a cave and that there is no way out and that there is no light. But if by faith you keep your feet moving, even in those moments where it seems so dark, you've seen the light, you know what's there, you must trust that there is indeed a light at the end of the tunnel. That God has answered that prayer. He has sent forth his light and his truth. And that he is right there with you in the dark times, in the drowning times, and in the dry times. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty, the rawness of psalms like this. We thank you for the permission that it gives us to be honest with you about where we are, about how we are feeling, about what we are hoping and trusting that you will do in our lives. And God, I want to pray right now specifically for those who are struggling who are overwhelmed and feel like they're drowning, who are, who are in a very dark place emotionally and mentally, those who are in a dry place spiritually, Lord, I pray that you would minister to them. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them closer and closer to you, that they would begin to see a beam of the light of your presence and that they would move towards it by faith and that they would be enveloped in your glorious splendor. So, Lord, we pray that you would do what only you can do, Lord. This is your living and active word. May it, may it bear fruit in the soil of our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.